Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 44, 14 through 34? When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servants remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shelby. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, chance once again to gather together to worship, uh, to be reminded of the great uh, news that we need to hear and yet so easily forget, um, that you forgive our sins, that you make it possible for us uh, to come into your presence and to, to change away from who we are and to who um, you are calling us to be, to be like Christ. I pray now that as we look at this story, the story of Judah, that you would open our eyes to see, to believe, to know that you love and care for us and are drawing us into your image. We pray this in the name of Christ. 
Amen. There's a, a kind of a funny, pithy phrase that I heard years ago, and when I first heard it, it was attributed to Yogi Berra. Uh, I don't know if you know Yogi Berra. It, I looked it up. It's not Yogi Berra. It's also been attributed to Einstein. It's not Einstein either, but here it is. It's, it's, it's got some pedigree behind it. In theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. In theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. We've been talking about reconciliation, and this sentence, this statement, this pithy statement applies maybe better to the process of reconciliation than anywhere else, right? We've talked the last two weeks about repentance and forgiveness, and the theory here is that repentance, saying, I'm sorry, and forgiveness, saying, I forgive you, equals reconciliation. That's the theory. But if you have friends, or are in a family, or are married, or have children, or have ever met another human being, you know that in practice, this is rarely simple or easy or works out as the theory suggests. Right? Saying I'm sorry, saying I forgive you, rarely lead to instantaneous reconciliation and restoration. And I'm convinced that these middle chapters of the Joseph story, chapters 42, 43, 44, 45, are about this process that's way more complicated in practice than it is in theory. So today I want to look at these chapters a little bit, this winding, halting, difficult road that, that takes us from these places where we say, I'm sorry, and we say, I forgive you, to the place where we actually get to experience reconciliation. And I want you to see that as we pursue this, we actually represent, just like I talked about last week, we represent God to each other in this process. So I hope you come out a little more, maybe sober-minded about the difficulty of reconciliation, but also hopeful and determined about the possibility of it and what it takes to actually be reconciled. So I'm going to offer some observations about today's text and kind of broaden it out to these middle chapters. I'm going to be reading between the lines. I want to encourage you, after you hear me talk today, I would encourage you to go back and read these chapters with some of these things in mind um, as you think through what was going on. There's a lot of material here, and so... Uh, it's going to be, you're going to need to go back and read the chapter to fully get all of the pieces of this story. Here's the first observation I want to offer to you. Uh, this is a no-brainer, but it's really important to say, and that, that is that reconciliation is a process. It's a process. It takes time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. All right, we saw two weeks ago in chapter 42 that Joseph sends this money back to his brothers, and you can tell that the process of forgiveness is underway. He's not holding it against them. He's sending money back. In that same chapter, you hear his brothers confess, we are guilty concerning our brother. Forgiveness and repentance exist there in chapter 42. And then you have chapter 43 and chapter 44, and it's not until chapter 45 that Joseph reveals himself to them. There's multiple journeys back and forth between Canaan and Egypt. There's testing, there's money in bags, there's golden cups, there's arrests, there's all kinds of... And the first couple of times I read through this like a few months ago, I was like, what is going on? What is happening? And these, I like, couldn't make sense of what... I was struggling to understand what was happening in these chapters, in this story. And what I've come to see in reading and thinking and praying about these is that what we see in, in these chapters is the relational outworking 
of the forgiveness and repentance that was already there in chapter 42. It's like the difference between blueprints and building a house. So forgiveness and repentance are the blueprints for the process of reconciliation. But as we built a house a few years ago and you see these beautiful blueprints on a page and you sign documents and then you have to wait a long time for the house to be built. And there's a lot of checkpoints, there's a lot of inspections, there's a lot of material, there's a lot of things that have to go into moving from blueprints over to the actual build. And that's part of what's going on in these chapters is the pathway, the house of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers is being built. Right? Forgiveness is this refusing to take revenge on someone and seeking their good and seeing the image of God in them as we talked about last week. And Two weeks ago, we talked about repentance is admitting guilt, it's embracing humility, it's turning away from harm. Those are the pathway, and yet those are both internal acts of will that then have to be transformed into outward acts. Chris and I have been talking about this internal act of will that we are making to go to bed earlier. But then every night, it gets to 9.30, and we're like, yeah, we can just stay up another 45 minutes, and then it turns into an hour. Like, right, the, the outworking of, you have a lot of those personal decisions that you make, and then the rubber meets the road, and you're like, nah, I don't think so. Right? And that's the, I forgive you, and then rubber meets the road, and you're like, nah, I don't actually think I forgive you. I'm sorry, no, I'm not. You, you, if you've ever said you're sorry to someone, you know that that's a lot harder to actually carry out forward than it is to say, I'm sorry, or to say, I forgive you. And yet, without these internal repentance and forgiveness, the process is not possible but it's not the end of the process. That forgiveness and repentance are not the end of the reconciliation process. They're the beginning. They're the preconditions. Bruce, can you put that triangle slide back up from last week? So this is, I showed you this last week. We can leave this up here. But the bottom is this repentance and forgiveness. These are internal acts of the will. Internal decisions that a person, the offender or the offended, makes to enter, to want to do that, to say, I'm not going to harm you, or to say that I understand and I'm, I enter humbly. But now there's another part of the process that has to be entered into. There's materials and time and inspections, just like the building. I found a really helpful article this week, a guy named Steve Cornell. He says this with respect to reconciliation. Uh, he says, you have forgiveness and repentance, but the broken relationship still needs attention. A forgiving heart is a beautiful thing in the sight of God, but it is invisible to the watching world, so a second step is called for. <laughs> There's a bridge that has to be built from internally deciding to forgive or internally repenting to actually having reconciliation with the person that you've had a conflict with. There's a bridge that needs to be built, and that's, I think, what's going on here in, these, in this story. It's a great example in the Joseph story of that bridge building. So let me suggest two sides to this bridge building. There are these two words right here. We're going to start on the right with testing. We know a lot about testing now, don't we? PCR tests and rapid tests and home tests and government paid for tests and government mandated. We know all about tests. Right? What's a test? A test is to check for the legitimacy of something or the presence of something. The dictionary says it's a procedure intended to establish quality, performance, or reliability. It's quality assurance. Tests are a quality assurance. And here's the, the reality about reconciliation. If repentance and forgiveness are not real, then reconciliation is dead in the water. If you say, I'm sorry, but you don't actually carry it out, then there's no possibility of reconciliation. If you say, I forgive you, and you don't actually give, it's not real, if it's not tested, if it doesn't have quality, you're never going to be reconciled with the other 
person. And testing here, I think, falls more on the, the, the side of the offended party. And there's two things we have to test if you've been offended by someone. And the first is to test your forgiveness. To test your forgiveness. It's easy to say, I forgive you. I've said, I forgive you many times. And then you see the person the next Sunday and you realize I haven't forgiven them at all. Forgiveness is more like a dimmer switch. It's not like a light switch, right? It's not like a yes or no question, have you forgiven them or not? It's, it's a thing that comes, it waxes and wanes. You, 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 you carry it out more or less in different times. And in this story, we see Joseph do some things that I think are really helpful in thinking about testing our forgiveness. Here's four questions that we can ask. The first one is this. In testing our forgiveness, do I desire to be in relationship with the person who harmed me? Do I desire it? If the answer is no, then it's probable that your forgiveness is waning. <laughs> we see in, in chapter 42, verse 9, Joseph recognizes his brothers, and what does he do? He instantly speaks harshly to them and calls them spies, and you can see there's like an internal tension going on in him. He's like, what? how am I supposed to relate to these people? But then as the story progresses, you can see he's leaning in to being in relationship with them, right? They don't know it's him. He has no reason to reveal himself. He has no reason to do any of this. He could just say, oh, look, there's my brothers, and then he could walk away and forget about all of it. But no, what does he do? He leans in, and he says to them, I'm going to pursue this. I desire relationship with my brother so much that I'm going to move into this situation. And forgiveness, we often try to forgive and forget, like we talked about a few weeks ago, and we try to just move on. Right? I see this in church all the time. People leave churches. They leave Sunday school classes. They leave small groups. Some people even leave neighborhoods, workplaces. Right? You just, we just try and walk away. I've, for, I've forgiven them, but I'd rather not be in relationship with them anymore, and I just walk away. That's not forgiveness. That's something else. There's another little reason here, little opportunity for me to rant about social media. Right? This is one way that social media robs us of our humanity. Because if you wrong me on social media, I just have to like click a little button and you disappear forever. I don't, have, I don't have to deal with you anymore. I don't have to look in your eyes and see your humanity and decide whether God is calling me to be in a relationship with you. I just block you and you go away forever. And it robs us of this invitation in forgiveness to actually desire to be in relationship with the person who harmed us. So that first test, do I actually desire to be in relationship with them? The second test is, what would I do if I saw them? We talked about last week, forgiveness is refusing to defeat the person who harmed you, even given the chance. We see this multiple times in the story of Joseph when his brothers keep coming back to him over and over. He has multiple opportunities to actually test out what will he do when confronted with them. Right? We, we know it's easy to like, uh, or spend a lot of time fantasizing about what I will say to that person who harmed me. Right, I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. Uh, and I don't want to actually have to test whether I'm going to, to say that or not. I'd rather just stay over here where I don't have to test whether I actually want to forgive and speak good to you. So the, the second test is, what, what am I doing to and for this person? What would I do? Would I defeat them if, they came into, if the opportunity came up? Would I take revenge or not? The third question is, Am I willing to reconcile? There's one thing to like 
theoretically desire to be in relationship with them, but reconciliation actually from both parties requires we enter into this messy, dirty, humility-inducing process of saying, I'm sorry, saying, I forgive you, and actually moving forward towards reconciliation. Are we willing to actually enter into that? And Joseph tests himself over and over in this. They come back, they come back. He has to cry and like go away in the other room. He's not sure, do I want to entrust myself into these people? Right? Three chapters worth of wrestling before in chapter 41, 45 next week, we'll see. He says, and Joseph could finally not contain himself. Right? He finally says, yes, I'm willing, but there's a struggle. And he's testing, am I willing to enter this process? Am I willing to reveal myself and entrust to this person who has hurt me? But forgiveness that's just only done in your heart is like love that's only in your heart. It has to come out or it doesn't mean anything. It's like, I was trying to think of another uh, good example and it's like a, I don't know if this is a good example or not, but like private forgiveness is like a privately held recipe. Like if I only ever keep the recipe in my head, there's no food on the table. You actually have to go and bring it out into the reality of the open world. Are we willing to do that? The fourth question, the fourth test is, am I actively seeking this person's good? To forgive is not just to forget, but to seek their good. This is something that's often ignored in forgiveness. Joseph testing himself over and over again. Am I actually seeking their good? Do I want what's best for them? Do I desire a relationship with them? What would I do if I came in contact with them? Am I willing to enter this process and am I seeking their good? But maybe underneath all of that is, am I willing to test my forgiveness? Am I actually willing to test it? Right? The one thing that a counterfeiter doesn't want you to do is actually examine the money that they have. <laughs> Counterfeit forgiveness is a forgiveness that doesn't want to be tested. It just wants to say, oh no, I forgive you, let's just get on, let's just get on forward as quick as possible rather than saying, no, I want to make sure I'm seeking your good, that I desire a relationship with you, that I'm willing to reconcile. I did, <laughs> I did engineering in college and the last thing I wanted to do was go to an engineering test. You know why? Because I didn't really learn engineering. <laughs> so tests were terrifying to me because I didn't know anything. <laughs> But the proof is in the pudding, right, as they say. For forgiveness to be real, for it to actually bear fruit, it has to be tested and proved genuine. But Joseph doesn't just test his forgiveness. He also tests his brother's repentance. That's what he's doing in these chapters. He's testing them. Not as a way of vengeance, but to prove that the repentance is real, because Joseph knows what we all know when we experience it, that saying I'm sorry is not actually enough. <laughs> that repentance is not just saying I'm sorry, but turning away from our wrongdoing. Steve Cornell in that article I mentioned said, words alone are often not enough to restore trust. When someone has been significantly hurt and feels hesitant about restoration with her offender, it is both right and wise to look for changes in the offender before allowing reconciliation to begin. You see, God doesn't just forgive sin in order to ignore it. <laughs> he forgives sin in order to deal with it. He says to the woman at the well, or he says to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, now go and change. Go and turn away from your sins. Forgiveness is not a method to ignore 
sin, but it's a spirit within which we deal with sin and conflict. Jesus says in Luke 17, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It sounds at first like he's making forgiveness dependent on the repentance, but we know over and over Jesus says, no, you need to forgive, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. Forgiveness needs to be unconditional, but the point of the the Luke 17 passage is that the forgiveness is not contradictory to confronting and rebuking and challenging the sin. They're not incompatible, and we see this all over the Joseph story. See it repeatedly as you look, right? Joseph's brothers uh, come to him, and it's the initial time they come to him, and what do they say? They say, we are honest men, and if you're Joseph, you're like, what? hello, what? You're honest men? You sold me into slavery and then lied to dad about it. And he thought I was dead for 20 years. You're anything but honest. He's like, what? I need to test, are they actually honest now? It's been 20 years. Are my brothers honest? Right? He demands to see Benjamin. Why does he demand to see Benjamin? I'm pretty certain he de- de- demands to see Benjamin because he wants proof of life. Right? Benjamin was, was Joseph's mom's other son, the new favorite son. His brothers sold him into slavery because he was the favorite son. What might they have done to Benjamin in the last 20 years? He's looking for change. Have they changed? Are they different? Have they grown? Right? He says to them, I'm going to keep one of your brothers in Egypt and I'm going to send you away. What might he expect them to do? Go away and leave his son in captivity, or leave his brother in captivity in Egypt because that's exactly what they did to him. You see this? He's constantly giving them opportunities to do the same thing again, to see have they changed this repentance that he somehow got to hear, right? He heard that, that they say that they know they're guilty, but has it actually changed their behavior? Have they repented? He's not being a jerk here. <laughs> He's testing to see if their repentance is genuine. Because reconciliation with his brothers is never going to be possible if the minute he reveals himself to them, they attack him again. This is so essential and so overlooked part of the process of reconciliation. There's two ways that I think we mess it up a lot. One of them is that in the name of mercy and grace, we simply just restore people back without any kind of process. I was talking to somebody last week after the forgiveness sermon about just the way that um, it has seemed like the church has done a very poor job of handling sexual abuse within its borders. And in the name of mercy and grace, we just restore offenders right back in without any process, without any testing, without any checking to see if the repentance and the change is, is there. And it leads us, in the name of mercy and grace, to tolerate sin in ways that we should not. This is why it's important. I want to say it again. Forgiveness is not a way of ignoring sin, but of dealing with it, of addressing it head on, and that confronting, rebuking, challenging sin is never contradictory to forgiveness. The other way that we get it wrong is that we do the testing, but we do it vindictively as a way of punishment. <laughs> right? There's a fine line here that's really hard for us to walk. To walk. Right? Sometimes when someone offends you, it's important as a part of the restoration process that you keep your distance from them. So you keep your distance, but you can also keep your distance as a way of hurting them, as I talked about last week. Same action, different motivations, different things. It's important when we move from forgiveness and repentance to reconciliation that the person who's offended us is remorseful. But demanding that remorse as a way of holding something over their head is not forgiveness. There's a fine line to walk here. But we have to see that reconciliation is always going to be conditional 
on the fact that the forgiveness and the repentance is actually real and needs to be tested. And we see Joseph doing that through this story. One more from Steve Cornell. It's a really helpful article. While its aim is restoration of a broken relationship, those who commit significant and repeated offenses must be willing to recognize that reconciliation is a process. If they're genuinely repentant, they will recognize and accept that the harm they've caused takes time to heal. If you've offended someone, if you've hurt someone deeply, demanding them to just reinstate you into the relationship you had before, demanding that kind of forgiveness is not right without proper process, without proper growth and change. I want to just suggest as you think about these situations in your own life to, one, to continue to test yourself, whether you're the offender or you're the offended, to test your forgiveness, to test your repentance, and also to get outside counsel in more complicated conflict situations. You need a third party, a third eye, another person speaking into this, helping you walk through this process. Completely avoiding it or trying to rush to reconciliation is not going to do anyone service. So testing, that's one side. The other side is turning. This is the actual turn that's required. This is the offender's role. just want to reiterate this. Repentance in the Old Testament is this word shuv. It means to turn back, to turn around. It's often used uh, to talk about people going back to a place that they used to be, to, to, to turn, physical turn. The New Testament word is metanoia. It's a change of mind. We see this in God's offer of forgiveness to us, right? Forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> it's a refusal to punish us with an invitation to turn away from that harm. This is always going to be critical in the process. Forgiveness always seeks to help offenders change, grow. Real forgiveness hopes, prays, seeks, enables, encourages real change and growth, real change and growth. You say, where's that in this passage? And this is where we get to see what I told you many weeks ago, that this story is almost just as much about Judah as it is about Joseph. And most of what you heard Shelby read was Judah talking to Joseph, and it's very cluttered linguistically. (laughs) So it might have been hard to follow, but I want to highlight some things for you here. Because Judah, at the beginning of this story, is literally the worst. (laughs) He's the one that they throw him in the pit, and he's like, I think we could get some money for this. And he's like, hey, guys, let's take him and sell him to those people, and we can get money for him and tell Dad that he's dead. That's Judah's idea. He's the one that thought of that. And then the next chapter, you get the whole story about Judah and Tamar, right? And Judah looks really, I mean, the whole beginning of the Joseph narrative is like neon flashing signs. Judah is terrible. Like that's like the neon flashing signs at the beginning of this story is Judah is terrible. I want to draw your attention to some of the things that just happened in this text that we read. Look at verses 15. Start in, verse, start in verse 15. Put it up there. Joseph said to them, to his brothers, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? That's its own whole thing, referencing dreams from previous times. Like, it's very fascinating stuff going on there. But listen, Judah says, 
What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What's so interesting about that is that they didn't do anything wrong in this immediate context. (laughs) Joseph had put their money in their bags and put the gold cup and then gone out and arrested them for doing the very thing that he did to bring them back. And he wants to know, how is Judah going to respond to being called out on his guilt? And what does Judah say? Our guilt has been found out. He openly now, (laughs) openly to Joseph is saying, my guilt has been found out. And most of the commentators reading this are like, there's something going on here where the author of the story wants us to see that Judah is actually embracing guilt at a high level. He's actually confessing something that he didn't do, which is underneath confessing something that he did do 20 years ago to Joseph. He's embracing his own guilt. His repentance is real. A few verses later, they're going back and forth about the Benjamin situation. And Judah says in verse 20, he says, And we said to you, Joseph, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. Now, three chapters ago, When they first met Joseph and he asked them about his family, you know what they said? They said, our brother is no more. Our brother is no more, as if he just disappeared. (laughs) And now we see a change in the way that Judah talks about what happened. He said, our brother is dead. There's a deepening realizing of what he's done. (laughs) There's an admittance of it directly to Joseph now, where he's moving from this place of of denial, this place of wavering, this, hey, we're honest men, to no, 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 we are guilty, (laughs) and our brother is dead. But then the kicker comes down in verse 32. And I find this to be one of the most compelling parts of the whole Joseph story. Let's start in, let's see what we got up there. We'll start in verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I came, as soon, Judah's talking, as soon as I came to you, Joseph, or sorry, as soon as I came to my father and the boy was not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, Benjamin, as soon as he sees that Benjamin is not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. In other words, look, if we don't bring Benjamin back to dad, he's literally going to die. We need to bring him back, and that's what, that's what they had said to Joseph. That's what they had said to Joseph, and then when they went to talk to Jacob, they said to Jacob, we're going to go take Benjamin, and I will bring him back, and listen to what Judah does. For your servant, Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. This is Judah, the one who sold Joseph into slavery, looking Jacob in the face and saying, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, you can kill me. He's pledging his life for the life of his brother. That's a turnaround. I don't know about you, but that's a turnaround. From the guy that sold his brother into slavery, that's a turnaround. And then after he made that pledge to Jacob, now he looks at Joseph and says, now therefore please let me remain instead of Benjamin as a servant to your Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. He sells himself into slavery to Joseph in order to protect Benjamin. There is a ginormous turn of events here with Judah. 20 years later, turn 20 years on, and Judah has changed. Judah has repented. He's turned away from his sin and living color. And Judah, or Joseph, too many J names in the story. And Joseph is seeing this. Can you imagine Joseph watching this happen? They don't know it's him. And here's Judah, the, 
the one of his brothers that sold him into slavery, offering his very own life for Benjamin. The next verse says, then Joseph could not control himself. <laughs> Repentance and forgiveness when tested and proved real leads to reconciliation. That's what we're going to see next week. I want to draw these things together for you and show you that all of this mirrors our relationship with God. This entire story is an analogy. Joseph is acting as God in this story. It's an analogy for the way that God loves and cares for his children. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. Discipline is confront, challenge, instructs, chastens, tests. God does that. Who does God do that for? Who does he test? Who does he confront? Who does he chasten? Everyone that he receives, which is to embrace with favor, to love, to accept, to forgive. Everyone God forgives, you know what he does? He chastens us and he instructs us and he confronts us. Why? Because he's seeking our good. He wants to draw us. He doesn't want to forgive our sin and be like, hey, your sin's wiped out, go and sin more. He says, no, I'm forgiving your sin. I'm entering into this process so that I can draw you into growth and change to become like Christ. Forgiveness is the way that God uses to draw us into change. The purpose of forgiveness, the purpose of this process is growth in the image of Christ. God forgives so that we can be changed. And we see that so clearly. The power that Joseph has through this whole narrative and we see his brothers growing and changing before his very eyes, repenting from their sin. And the thing is that God invites us to participate in that same process with each other. Right, that we have this privilege, like I said last week, of representing God to one another in this process, of bearing on our own bodies, as Paul says, the marks of Jesus. When you harm me, I bear that. I don't take revenge. I don't return evil for evil, but I also don't run away. This is that crazy third way, right? The turn the other cheek third way. Right? The fight response is to punch back. The flight response is to run away, but Jesus says, no, there's a third way to do this. And that's to move towards the person that hurt you, believing that you can demonstrate forgiveness to them. Like the world will either cut people off or it will seek revenge. And yet we have this opportunity to image Jesus by seeking other people's good, by taking on their debts, by believing and seeking their change, entering this messy process, the practical messy process, so that they and us can be sanctified can be changed into the image of Christ. And this is one of the ways that God does this in the world. Here's a few final questions just to consider. As you think about people that you have conflict with, this might be giant conflicts, might be tiny conflicts. What kind of conflicts do you have that need reconciliation? Are you open to relationship with that person? Who comes to mind? I was reminded this week of a, there's a guy I knew in seminary, that I just did not get along with. <laughs> we didn't have any big open conflict, but it was one of those just like, not him. You know, for some reason, I don't know where it started or what happened, but we just did not. And this week, after like five years of not thinking about him, a friend of mine ran into him and said, hey, guess who I just ran into? And I was like, no, no, you didn't. Not him. <laughs> Punch him for me. I don't know who you think of. He's, the, he's one of the people I would think, like unreconciled relationships, just hanging out there. Who are those people for you? Is God asking you to, 
desire relationship and reconciliation with them or to seek it? Are you testing your forgiveness and repentance? If you say, I'm sorry, if you say, I forgive you, do you test that? Or do you just hope it's accepted and hope it goes away? Do you test it? Do you see that the purpose of forgiveness is not transaction but formation, growth, change? The purpose of forgiveness, God's forgiveness to us and our forgiveness to one another is not some kind of transaction where we just get it off the books, but where we actually pursue being formed together. And then the final question is, do you believe that people can change? God changes people. He changed Judah. All of Christianity is founded on the assumption that people can change. Do we live in this reality that Jesus has forgiven your sins and is molding you into his image and you can participate in that process with the people that you're in relationship with? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your forgiveness of our sins, your refusal to ruin us, to punish us according to the way our sins deserve. We also thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us in our sin. You don't cancel the debt and then let us rack it up again, but that you move towards us, that you entered into this world to bear the marks of our sin on your body, that you might make us into your image. Give us that vision in every conflict we have. Give us this vision that you have provided this conflict as an opportunity for us and for the one who hurt us to, to grow, to change, to receive forgiveness, to be changed by it. Let us love one another in this way here in our church and our families and as we go about our lives. We pray now as we do each week that as we bring our whole selves to you, as we offer our time, our energy, our money for your kingdom, that you would use it, that you'd bless it, that you'd make it fruitful, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. We pray it in your name, amen.